Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kim Bellinger. We're at Bellinger Estates in Newburgh. It's February 9th, 2021. Kim, thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question for you, why wine? <laughs> um, because I'm married into it, honestly. Um, so I met my husband, Evan, at um, Oregon State University. We were both in the College of Agricultural Sciences. And so uh, once I met him, I realized that there was a wine industry here. And strangely enough, I grew up in Sherwood and had no idea where I was living. And so um, when he graduated from Oregon State, he came up here to the valley to start working and manage vineyards, and he always had the dream of starting a vineyard and a winery. And so uh, he knew from a very young age that this is what he wanted to do. And so when we got married, I figured, well, I should probably learn something about this business, because um, he's got the grape side down, uh, and so I should probably figure out how to run a winery. So I um, applied for a job with Adelsheim Vineyard, actually, and David interviewed me uh, for a bookkeeping job. And um, he said, you would hate bookkeeping, but we need to hire you. And so we're going to put you in as the office manager. So, and David was amazing. He was an amazing mentor for the whole 12 years I was at Adelsheim. Um, but especially in those first couple of years, because he, he really listened to what I wanted to learn. Um, and put me in a position where I could really explore that. Uh, he, I mean, my first day on the job, I was part of the board meeting. And so I, you know, I was taking notes furiously, trying to figure out what everything meant. Um, but it really gave me a lot of opportunities throughout the time that I was there to learn about wine, to learn about the industry, um, and who better to learn it from than one of the founders of the industry. So, uh, so wine kind of just, uh, it, it just happened. I wasn't seeking it out necessarily other than I was learning, I wanted to learn about the business. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I think, I mean, the Oregon wine industry is such an amazing place to learn about wine. Uh, obviously, Oregon Pinot Noir is delicious and it's amazing. Uh, but it also has such a sense of community in, in this valley particularly. Um, it's, it's been revolutionary to me every time I see it, where we can literally reach out to anybody else in the industry and ask them any question and they will answer it honestly. It's, you don't find that in any other industry. And I find that such a humbling and wonderful experience every time I see it. Mm -hmm. um, it you know, and that, that really, to me, speaks about why wine, because mm -hmm. it's, it's something that brings people together it's not something that's divisive. It's not something that's competitive. People drink different wines every night. They're not drinking a single, you know, I don't only drink Bellinger Estates or I don't only drink something else. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're in it together. And so I, I think that's just such a wonderful part about the wine industry and in particular the Oregon wine, mm -hmm. wine industry. So. So you mentioned you went to Oregon State, grew up in Sherwood, had yeah. no real notion of, an or of a wine industry being here. Right. So what was the plan when you went to Oregon State? What were you thinking? 
So I started out, um, I wanted to be a vet. So I went to school for animal science and biology. So I uh, got two degrees, one in animal science, one in biology, pre-vet, uh, minor in chemistry, minor in business, um, you know, all the things, <laughs> uh, very related to wine. And so, um, yeah, so the plan was to be a veterinarian. Uh, when I worked, I worked at a veterinary clinic from in high school and college and realized pretty quickly that my personality was gonna burn out um, if I went that path. Um, and also that I really couldn't make much money doing it, <laughs> or at least I thought at the time. And so, um, so I kind of changed tack and, and wanted to still explore something in the sciences. Um, but really, I mean, my parents are both business people. I, I wanted to get my MBA, I wanted to run a business. Um, and so, really that's translatable, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the science background helps me just, I mean, it, it gives you a way to think about things, but at the same time, the business side is really what attracted me to, um, it, to anything, mm -hmm. really. And so when I was at Adelsheim, um, I went back to school in the evenings uh, and went and got my MBA. So, which was just really helpful to put context around a lot of the business mm -hmm. things that were happening in the world. And so, um, so my, my plan shifted probably in sophomore year of college to something other than veterinary medicine, but at the same time I wanted to kind of use that science as a background mm -hmm. and, and backbone for my exploration into running a business. Tell me about that exploration into running a business and, and how it has translated. How is a wine business what you expected and how is, what have you had to learn kind of on the fly about wine that's different maybe? Yeah, you know, one, one thing that I really love about the wine industry is that it's so vertically integrated. So there's, it, you get to do everything from growing grapes to harvesting them, bringing them in the production facility, you know, so it's, it's got the agriculture side, it's got manufacturing, it's got sales and marketing, you know, it's, it's kind of the whole gamut. And so rather than in a t traditional business where you're either delivering a service or you're making a product, um, you're, you're, you really get to see kind of the soup to nuts <laughs> in the wine industry, which, which I love. Um, and I also have a, a deep passion for agriculture. And so the other piece that that I've found really wonderful about the wine industry is that you get that connection to ag, but at the same time, there's a value add portion. So there's a, there's a piece of it that, that you bring to the table. It's mm -hmm. not just harvesting something and taking it to a farmer's market. Um, there's, there's manipulation that happens. There's the winemaking side that's such an art and a science and I'm not good at it. Um, and then there's, you know, there's all the other business side of mm -hmm. things, which, mm -hmm. is, which is fascinating to me too. And so, um, it, you know, Adelsheim was such an, a great learning ground, like I said before, for the business side of things, in addition to the other two. It's, uh, you know, it's big enough that I was able to do a lot of inventory planning and kind of sales and marketing geared, you know, learning, um, but also learn the administrative side and HR and, you know, all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to learn at a small company mm -hmm. either. Um, or or if you were at a massive company, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to learn your, your lane um, and not see the whole gamut. So, yeah, I think that the, um, the interest to me is learning all the different sides of the business. Um, and, and like I said, Adelsheim and the wine industry in general is a great place to see mm -hmm. all of those different things mm -hmm. at once. Mm -hmm. 
So tell me about your your first impression of the Oregon wine industry from your from your position at Adelsheim or, or or before whatever your kind of first impressions of the industry were and tell me about that process of learning from from kind of not really having any kind of background in yeah. it and trying to learn it all. Tell me about that process for you of, of learning the industry and learning Oregon wine. Yeah, I mean, I was thankful that my husband did it too. So he worked in the industry for a year before I did um, and managed vineyards at Oregon State as well. So I, I got to learn a lot of the farming side by osmosis, um, which was helpful. Uh, but yeah, I think coming into the industry kind of blind was helpful because I could just ask all the questions and, and thankfully again in this industry it's okay to ask dumb questions um, and especially at the time when the industry was pretty small. So I started um, I graduated in 2007 and started in the industry in earnest in January of 20, uh, 2008. And so I remember one of my first impressions was going to the, um, the Oregon Wine Industry Symposium, which at the time was in Eugene, mm -hmm. uh, in the Hilton Hotel you know, lobby. And there were maybe 200 people there. So you walk around and you meet everybody that's in the industry at the time, and now that fills the you know the convention center mm -hmm. so it's there's been a lot of growth obviously um, a huge number of brands have proliferated over the last 12 years um, a lot of different vineyards and wineries coming up but also different you know different models different mm -hmm. business models have come out of all of the transition too so I think I mean I think coming into the industry with with no preconceived notions or no kind of expectation of what was supposed to happen or what my career path was supposed to look like mm -hmm. was actually helpful because I didn't I didn't have to write I didn't have to ask all the right questions or know all the right answers mm -hmm. you know I could just kind of sit back and learn and um, and thankfully with my first position being you know as the office manager so I was kind of the the hub of of all the different pieces of the business and and everybody kind of came to me with random questions mm -hmm. so i could really get good exposure to all of the different uh aspects of the business which was really really helpful so mm. um and adelsheim went through a lot of change over the time that i was there um and which was great i mean it was it was a really cool opportunity to see kind of that transformation of a business so you mentioned you kind of not having not having a clear career path because not really yeah. not really. So tell me about the career path that ended up that you ended up on at sure. Adelsheim, and about sort of the roles you grew into. Yeah. So um, I had a lot of different titles while I was at Adelsheim, uh, and I, I owe all of that to David and and him shepherding me through kind of a, a learning process, if you will. Um, so I, I won't remember exactly the trajectory that happened, but uh, so I started as the office manager. I think I was, I was office manager for maybe four or five years, or probably three or four years, um, and then really shifted into a role that was more um, assisting the sales side of things. Um, and so it was, I did a huge amount of learning in that period of time, managing the sales operations of the business. Um, I got to travel with, you know, Bill Blanchard and Michael Adelsheim and and Natalie Quick, and I got to I got to see firsthand what it was like to beat the streets and go meet with distributors and do presentations on Friday mornings and, you know, fly late at night and stay in hotels. You know, the super glamorous thing of selling wine that uh, that from the outset was was it was really fascinating and it it really helped me give an appreciation for 
the work that's done on the sales side. Um, I also got to spend a lot of time in the tasting room and, and working with consumers and seeing what, um, how they respond to the wines, what kinds of questions they ask, why they're coming to a vineyard here in the valley in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, so that was kind of the next step was really working with all the sales teams and and I did like I said I, I worked on a lot of inventory planning and sales management in terms of projecting sales trends and and run out dates and all of the you know all of the logistics behind the sales side of things um, so that was kind of one of the next steps and then um, then I kind of fell into a role overseeing all of the business operations. So really got into um, more of the accounting side of things, finance, learning HR, like I said, um, and, and overseeing all of the administrative side of the business, which, is, uh, which was really kind of where my niche was from the beginning, because all of the pieces that I'd worked on throughout that time was, uh, was related to, you know, logistics and mm -hmm. operations and stuff like that so um, and then from there I became the chief operating officer so for the last probably five years uh, that I was at Adelsheim I was the chief operating officer um, first with David and then seeing through the transition of David uh, taking a step back and and going to uh, Joth Rickey was our CEO for about a year and a half um, and then he left us for Dutch Brothers and uh, did ama is doing amazing things there, which is super awesome. Um, and then for the last probably year and a half or so um, uh, was Chief Operating Officer and we did not have a CEO. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lynn Loacker, was, our owner, was, uh, was in that role of CEO, but all the day-to-day -day, um, operations of the organization were myself and, and Rich Sermoni. So. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing opportunity uh, over that period of time to see such transition um, mm -hmm. of the organization, but also all of our people. I mean, we had, uh, we had people that had been there for 30 years, um, and the average tenure was close to 10. So it was, it was really amazing. A group of people that was, is absolutely unparalleled in expertise and, um, and passion, for sure. Um, but yeah, so it was a, it was a, I wouldn't say a rambling transition through the business, but at the same time, uh, it was a pretty incredible opportunity to be able to start my career in the wine industry in one place and go all the way through mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. kind of life cycle, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so I retired from Adelsheim in January of 2020, and then the world exploded. Um, and so... Uh, it was kind of a strange time to leave. Um, well, it was it was it was an opportune time for me to leave at at the time, and then of course COVID hit, and uh, so I was glad that I didn't have to make that transition after COVID hit, uh, because I, I probably would not have left in the middle of all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so it gave me the opportunity to really start focusing on our brand um, and our family's kind of trajectory. Um, and of course, I I had a third child uh, three days after I left Adelsheim, so it was, uh, you know, jumping straight into the next thing, so, yeah. Never bored. Never bored. Never bored. No, we are not, we are not a lazy people, I wouldn't say. <laughs> so, that's a lot, an interesting path and a lot of different yeah. roles. What was, what, what did you enjoy the most? What was your favorite part, uh, favorite role that you had while you were at Adelsheim, and, and what, 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 what was the most rewarding? Yeah, I, I would say that being chief operating officer throughout that whole period was incredibly enjoyable. Um, 
I really, I felt comfortable doing what I was doing. I, I felt like I, I really knew the business. Um, I really knew what we were trying to do. Um, and, you know, I knew all the people and I, and I kind of, I, I was in a good place in terms of our systems and stuff like that. Obviously, there was still a lot of stuff to work on um, and a lot of improvements to make at any given point. But, um, but at the same time, I think it was a, it was a comfortable thing. I, it felt uh, good. We had a really great group of people that I was working with, which is, which is always incredible. Like just to have, um, to have an amazing, talented, passionate group. Um, of people working for the same thing mm -hmm. is a pretty incredible thing to be a part of. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I would say throughout, throughout all of it, the best part um, was the people that I worked with, yeah. for sure. So as a, as a COO, especially during a time when you don't have a CEO, obviously mm -hmm. you mentioned you kind of have your hands in, in everything and you're yeah. kind of overseeing everything. I'm curious, um, Obviously, you have a great team of people around you, but mm -hmm. some of the vision has to be coming from you as well. Mm -hmm. So, tell me about sort of what you wanted to impart from your position, or, and mm -hmm. that can that can be question can go for other parts of the industry, or the job you had as well. But I'm curious, especially from the top there, yeah. what did you want to impart on Alzheimer? What did you what kind of what kind of course did you want to set? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's an interesting question. Um, Adelsheim has had a lot of uh, kind of course correction in terms of vision over the last 12 years or so, um, or probably the last 10, um, realistically. And, and especially with, you know, David taking a step back and Joff coming on, there was, there was a lot of shifting happening in terms of vision. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was uh, really in my tenure as COO without a CEO, was really trying to keep keep the trains running on time, keep, you know, keep things moving forward and, and really trying to clarify the vision that the owners had for the organization and clarify how we could achieve it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's always an interesting struggle just because, you know, there are things that are, there are things that are really feasible and, and very doable. There are things that are a stretch. And so, so really trying to, to marry those two things uh, is, is interesting and was a really amazing experience, um, and and what I what I tried to do, no matter what point in my tenure um, we were at, we were trying to make sure that everybody was on the same page mm -hmm. and that we were all moving in the same direction. Um, because obviously, when you when you do that, you can do great things, and if somebody's rowing in the wrong direction, it's it hurts. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was really kind of the the intent was to get everybody uh, to continue to keep everybody on the same page and and moving forward with passion mm -hmm. so you talk about you talked about kind of being there while there's a lot of shifting going on mm -hmm. within Adelsheim. tell me about some of the some of the projects you undertook or some of the changes that that happened while you were there mm -hmm. there were kind of notable signposts along the way for you that, that things were that things were shifting or that you were that you were make kind of imparting or the team was imparting something onto the brand yeah I mean, I think I think I saw a, a really interesting transition early at Adelsheim, which was um, when I got there. We uh, it was probably the a couple weeks into me being at Adelsheim, and we broke ground on a new construction project. So we went from having kind of the the main portion of the building, which was a tank room and a warehouse and a um, and a, some caves um, and a fermentation wing. To have to almost doubling the space, mm -hmm. um, 
all of the original building was geared towards large lots, um, big fermenters, um, throwing a lot of blocks in the same tank kind of thing. Um, and really, uh, before I got there, there was conversation about really shifting the brand from being very focused on Willamette Valley and large production um, wines mm -hmm. to being much more focused on small lots uh, that we could really differentiate. And if anybody is familiar with David Adelsheim, they know that the expertise on where Pinot Noir and Chardonnay is grown and the importance of that is, is so paramount to the Adelsheim brand and David and, you know, um, and all of the work that we did. So, so really it was shifting from the Willamette Valley tier of things mm -hmm. towards upper tier single vineyards, um, uh, more exclusive mm -hmm. and, and really notable wines that were really unique. So I think that was a big shift that, that started, like I said, kind of before I got there, um, the design of the new building had that in mind. We built uh, this incredible facility that was uh, super flexible. So our, the original tank room has these big tanks that are stuck in place. You will never be able to move them until you tear the building down. Um, to the new, the new uh, building that we built was a wide open room with two-ton fermenters that could all move around at any point. You could, um, you know, you could connect them up wherever they were in the room. And so the the even the design of the building was geared towards small lots, single vineyards, mm -hmm. which was a which was a really big transition. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it kind of it laid the groundwork for all of the work that we did after that in terms of really focusing on what Pinot Noir is all about, mm -hmm. which is place. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about obviously that that presents a change to everything about the business. If you're changing mm -hmm. what kind of wine you're making, all of a sudden you're selling different wine, and you know. Yeah. So I'm curious about that sort of transition and, and, the, and, and from, your, from your point of view of, of watching the brand change to this, this kind of single vineyard upper echelon Pinot Noir and Chardonnay yeah. and how, the, how that sh kind of shift happened in terms of sales and in terms of distribution in yeah. terms of kind of rebranding. Yeah, um, it's interesting because it, that transition is still happening at Adelsheim, and so it's a it's been a long road, um, and it's really really challenging for an organization that has a lot of infrastructure um, that was built and geared towards the the large production mm -hmm. kind of mode um, to going towards high end single vineyards, and also one that had such a long history. Uh, in the industry at various price points. And w I think one of the things that we discovered early on is that we were known as a value brand. Mm -hmm. um, we were perceived as a value brand by consumers. And so making that shift towards something that's an exclusive elite, um, um, you know, high price point brand is really challenging to do. Um, and we, I think that's why that transition has taken so long. Um, and uh, there have been a lot of points along the way that we've slipped back and we've uh, kind of questioned the vision um, and questioned the feasibility of it. And so I think those are still ongoing conversations that are happening. Mm -hmm. And they're important ones to, to consider in terms of just financial feasibility of the company and you know and market perception and there's there's so many pieces that go into play when you are making a shift like that mm -hmm. for a brand that's been around for so long. Mm -hmm. It was a great learning opportunity, like I said. Um, there's a lot of things in there that are that are hard to unpack mm -hmm. um, and and 
you know, we, we learned a ton. Um, I don't think we found the right answer by the time I had left, but, uh, but I think there's, we made a huge amount of progress in shifting um, a lot of market perception from Willamette Valley tier um, towards Sing Shehala Mountains mm -hmm. and towards single vineyards so that we were much more known for those wines mm -hmm. and, had, and had much more success selling those wines uh, by the time I had left. Mm -hmm. So obviously Adelsheim has the advantage of being one of the pioneer brands and a very well-known name. I'm curious about uh, how much of the Oregon wine market changed while you were there? How much did how, the, the, growth, the growth in the brands, the growth in competition, how much did that affect what you were doing? In terms of sales in Oregon? Yeah, yeah. In just in sort of in terms of how Adelsheim was presenting itself as an Oregon brand with a, mm. with a huge growth of other Oregon brands. Sure. I think, I mean, I think one of the advantages that we had is that David was one of the founders. And so he was never in this industry to be in it alone mm -hmm. or to be in it above everyone else. Um, I think David always had that incredibly clear vision of, of rising tide lifts all boats. Um, he, he was so, still is so incredibly dedicated to um, building this industry mm -hmm. as a whole, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, in a lot of organizations that have started since then, they didn't have to put in all of that work. Um, and so I think that was just so fundamental for Adelsheim, mm -hmm. for the brand, for our organization. It was, um, you know, we hired people based on their desire to be in a community. Um, and so I, I think it permeated everything that we did. Mm -hmm. um, it, which made it easier to have the conversation of, yeah, there's more competition out there, there's more wines, there's more brands in the market, there's, you know, there's more uh, cluttering on the shelf. You know, it's, it, it wasn't ever seen as a threat. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, mm -hmm. it was always seen as, we need to go and promote Oregon, because if they don't know where Oregon is, they're never gonna know who Adelsheim is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think it was just, it was so ingrained in everything that we did uh, that seeing the market or seeing the, the industry grow was, a, was always seen as a really good thing mm -hmm. um, and a very positive thing uh, from, from our perspective. And of course, you know, um, I had the opportunity to go to, um, to Germany to Provine with David. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a number of years ago now, I can't remember what year it was, um, but it was the same type of thing. You know, we, and, and that was such an amazing perspective to see because Provine's, you know, the largest wine show in the world. It was literally the size of like 11 Costco's <laughs> all filled with wine. And Oregon literally had a corner, mm -hmm. like of one building. It was humbling to say the least. But at the same time, it was such an incredible opportunity because people came up to us going, I've heard about Oregon, we wanna taste it, we wanna learn more. And these are people from all around the world. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really incredible to see that, um, that we had a name, but it wasn't because Adelsheim went, mm -hmm. it was because Oregon went. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like I said, I think that permeated everything we did. So it made, um, it made the growth of the industry a really positive thing mm -hmm. and a really good thing for the brand. It's a lot of pressure being the Oregon brand at a show that size. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, there were probably 12 of us, sure. 12 brands in one booth, but we all had one booth and we all, you know, 
We had a lot of fun. It was it was a really fun trip. Actually, it was uh, it was pretty entertaining and uh, and a great way to get to know people from the Oregon wine industry that you know you see peripherally and you mm -hmm. you say hi at Oregon Wine Symposium and and you know stuff like that. But to get to spend a whole week, mm -hmm. you know, really digging in with them, it's it was really really fun. Mm -hmm. So. So tell us about. Bellinger Estates, and tell me about the, sure. the sort of the the, the, the genesis of it, and, and why sure. January 2020 was the time you chose to step away <laughs> to right. focus on this. Yeah, 2020, you know, why not? Um, yeah, so we started Bellinger Estates with um, with a Pinot Noir that we made uh, with the 2014 vintage. So, like I said, uh, Evan had always planned on starting a winery and um, doing the wine thing. And so it was, uh, if anybody's ever met Evan, uh, when he gets his mind set on something, it happens. Um, and so we started with the 14 vintage. It was a great year. Um, there was Pinot Noir available. Um, we had good connections in terms of, uh, we, we started working with Dobbs and making our wine for us. Uh, like I said, Evan's really good at the vineyard side. I'm decent at the business side. The, uh, the winemaking side, we are, we are not perfect at. We make wine in the garage. We have made wine in the garage since 2005. And so uh, we've been doing that a long time. It's really fun to do. But at the same time, neither of us are chemists. Um, we are. It's not our expertise. So we wanted to find a partner that, that would really work with us um, to make beautiful wines that were representative of what we wanted to do um, and, and do it in a way that, was, that also meshed with all of the work that Evan does in the industry. So uh, he is uh, currently at Results Partners. So he gets the opportunity to work with so many growers all across the valley and all across the state, really. Um, in, and managing their vineyards. Mm -hmm. And so his relationships with clients give us the ability to make wines from fruit that he has a hand in, but at the same time, uh, we don't have to grow it all or we don't have to make the wine ourselves. So we're, we're working with Dobbs to make the wines. Um, and once we kind of got that ironed out, we, we really approached the Bellinger Estates brand as uh, we want to make really affordable and approachable wines um, that are representative of Oregon and the amazing things that we can grow here. Uh, we focused initially on Pinot Noir. We added Chardonnay um, later in the game. And we really wanted to make something, like I said, that's affordable and approachable because we saw, um, we saw a big gap, actually, in um, what Oregon is really known for, which mm -hmm. is the high-end, upper-tier wines that are distinct and beautiful and representative of the place that they're grown. But we saw a gap between the people that were buying those wines and the next generation of people that we will all have to sell to at some point soon. Uh, we found that a lot of our friends, and we're millennials, but um, we found that a lot of our millennial friends were not buying wine. They weren't even buying any wine, much less Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. They were drinking microbrews and ciders and, you know, interesting cocktails and stuff. They, it wasn't that they weren't spending money on alcohol. They were not choosing to start with Oregon wine mm -hmm. because they couldn't start at $50. Nobody's going to jump in to something that they don't know at a price point that's hard at 
you know, you go into a tasting room and you have a flight of single vineyards and they all taste the same to you because you're not familiar with wines. You know, it was, it was really daunting mm -hmm. um, to a lot of our friends. And so we saw a gap there that we wanted to address. And so really the, the impetus for, the, for our brand was really to address that gap. Um, we started out thinking that we were going to do distribution. As everybody in the wine industry knows, distribution has been real challenging in the last couple of years. So we quickly um, realized that after making too much wine, um, which I think is a lot of people's story, is starting with too many. And of course, you know, Evan manages large vineyards. I was at Adelsheim, so 500 cases was a rounding error. And turns out when you both have full-time jobs and, uh, and uh, are not dedicating all of your time to hitting the streets and distribution, 500 cases is too much. So we quickly <laughs> adjusted um, downwards and so that was that was helpful but uh, but yeah now we're so we started the tasting room process we um, we bought this property uh, back in 2016 so this was a very strange piece of property it's got two duplexes a house and it had uh, 12 acres of dying hazelnuts on it filberts and so uh, it was on the market for five years and we were eyeing it for a long time thinking it would be a great opportunity for somebody who wanted to be a landlord and a farmer at the same time which is thankfully exactly what we wanted to do so we had the opportunity to buy it um, from a wonderful woman named adelina slocum and she was 92 when we bought the property um, she was born on this property so her dad bought it with his discharge money from World War I uh, and grew grapes here during Prohibition. Uh, he made wine in the garage. They were Italian, so that's what you do. Um, and he, uh, she told us the story of when she was six or seven or something like that, uh, he would have her run down to the road to watch out for people while he was making wine in the garage during Prohibition. So um, we were like, okay, this, this all seems to mesh <laughs> with our story. Um, and really, you know, we're, we were very blessed to be able to purchase the property and, and really kind of um, shape it into something that, that we wanted to um, promote with the Bellinger Estates brand. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that, we planted the vineyard. Uh, so the vineyard has been in uh, for three years now. So it was planted in 2017 in the fall. And, and then we recognized too that this would be a good opportunity to do a tasting room. So. Uh, it took about a year to build this building that we're in now. Um, it's a very humble barn tasting room, um, but at the same time, we wanted to make it uh, we wanted to make it approachable, just like uh, the intention with the wines. We wanted this to be a place that people can bring their kids, they can hang out um, and enjoy some wine, but also just get exposed to the industry in a way that you kind of can't do at a lot of the other vineyards. And what I tell people too is that, you know, uh, my foundation at Adelsheim gave me a lot of appreciation for place, for making single vineyard wines that are really incredible and really, um, really, really special and super geeky. Um, but at the same time, we need to get people into the door of drinking Oregon wines. Mm. I have a lot of friends who make super geeky wines that are really fascinating and I can give directions to people of where to go and experience those wines. That's not what we're doing. Um, we're not making single vineyard, single clone, you know, 
single row uh, wines. We're making wines that are more representative of Oregon, of, of the Willamette Valley, um, and then we're doing some single vineyards of uh, places that we have dear to our hearts mm -hmm. and places that Evan has planted, for instance, um, and, and manages today. So, uh, so we have a little, a little taste of some of those single vineyard things, but really our goal is to refer people to where they can learn more um, because we have so many amazing connections of people doing that really, really well. So. Interesting, interesting philosophy. I like that. An interesting way to do it. Tell me about yeah. your with, when it comes to the winemaking, since it's the one part of the process that you don't really have mm -hmm. a huge hand in. Mm -hmm. uh, how much of it, of it is your how much of it is your say, and how much of sure. it is on the, is on the, is on the winemaking end? Yeah. So uh, Dobbs does all the hard work. Um, we get to go and taste wine. So uh, we go down there and um, and work closely with them in terms of blending uh, mm -hmm. is the big thing that we do. And of course, Evan's involved on the vineyard side, mm -hmm. so he brings a lot of fruit in the door for um, for Dobbs and Wine by Joe. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's involved on that side of it. And then once it's in barrel, we start doing barrel tastings and really um, kind of hone what we're going for with mm -hmm. each of our wines. Um, our product line expanded when we started the tasting room. We, like I said, we only had a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay, um, both Oregon tier, when we were kind of focused on the distribution side of things. And then when we decided to open this tasting room, we knew we needed to have more wine for people to taste when they showed up so that, you know, it wasn't, hi, welcome, here's our wine, <laughs> the one wine we have. <laughs> so we, um, we worked with Dobbs closely to kind of hone what we wanted to show mm -hmm. um, and what different... Um, different pieces we wanted to have available for people to, to taste here at, at the tasting room. So, mm -hmm. um, so we're involved in terms of the blending process and, uh, and, and thankfully everybody at Dobbs does an amazing job and you know, Gretchen is a great friend of mine and, and the, team are, uh, the team over there is really amazing at what they do. Um, and they were very patient with us being their tiniest customer, I think, um, still to date. So we're like, can, can you make a smaller amount? And they're like, no, that won't even fit in the hose. Like, we got to, here's the limit. So they've been very patient with us, which is, which is wonderful. But yeah. Can't make wine by the glass, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. So what is, how would you define your role here and, and, why, and why, why was 2020 the time to step away from Adelson yeah. to focus on this? Yeah, what would I say I do here? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, like I said, I stepped away from Adelson in January of 2020 um, uh, and that was partially in preparation for our third kiddo to come along. Um, and it was really a, a chance for me to step back to, um, to really hone the vision for Bellinger Estates for our tasting room, um, and and really it was it was time in terms of Adelsheim too. They needed to kind of move on to the next step. I needed to 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 really focus on this and and manage the three different companies that we have, um, and and really focus on the family too. And as it turned out, 2020 threw all of us a curveball, and uh, then I became you know a. a homeschool teacher and all of the other things as well. So um, yeah, I think, I think our vision for Bellinger States here, like I said, is for people to really come out and connect and begin their, um, 
their venture into Oregon wine. Um, my vision too is to have this be more like a family farm mm -hmm. than a classic tasting room only. Um, we've seen, I think, with the with the development of the industry, there's there's a lot of kind of Napa Valley ideas coming up, which is not a bad thing. And there's a lot of people out there looking for those experiences, the the really exclusive, really high end, amazing food and wine pairing kind of experiences that uh, that they've done an amazing job of down in California. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that influx up here. What I'd like to create is not the Disneyland approach to tasting rooms uh, because we can't, I mean, we can't compete in that world, nor do we want to necessarily. And there are people doing an amazing job of those really incredible Uber experiences. I want to make it a family farm. So you come here to get your pumpkins. You can come here to get your cut flowers. Um, I have quilts hanging on the wall that I made. Um, and, and there's a slide out back for the kids. Like it's, it's low key approachable. We make wine, but like like I said, it's kind of a gateway mm -hmm. to the Oregon wine industry. I like that. <clears throat> so tell me about what you brought along from Adelsheim when you were, you know, it came to starting this brand and it came to, yeah. and it comes to running it. Oh, I love Excel. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's actually that's one piece that I really miss about being involved in a large wine brand is there was a lot of opportunity to do planning and to do you know big scale models of, of things in Excel and I'm a nerd when it comes to that. But um, so I've I've brought some Excel spreadsheets uh, or I've made some and they're much more humble here because I have five SKUs to manage. But at the same time. Um, I kind of bring that systems thinking approach um, and trying to kind of create systems so that we can grow um, as fast as we're able. Of course, 2020 was such a weird year for everybody that, you know, we opened the tasting room in August and saw very few visitors because nobody was visiting anywhere mm -hmm. um, at the time. And so um, that's been a lesson in patience in terms of just starting a, starting a brand during a pandemic. Um, but at the same time, it helped us be um, it helped us really have a soft start, which was super helpful because, <laughs> you know, you need glasses and you need a place to put them and you need racks and you need, you know, I mean, there's all the little things that you don't think of when you're uh, opening a tasting room. And so it's given us the opportunity to, to really have a kind of a soft entry that way. Um, but thankfully, all of my training at Adelsheim prepared me very well to run a tasting room or to run a business that's in the wine industry. I, um, I think I have appreciated all the work that, that we did on trying to understand vision and how it translates to all of the different elements of the business because it gives me a different perspective than I would have had otherwise starting a, starting a business in the wine industry um, if I hadn't had that you know, extensive mm -hmm. um, development of ideas and then implementation of those ideas. It's, it's been an interesting thing to go to a small brand, but at the same time, it's, uh, it, it feels easier because it's, it's, I've, I've learned the complicated side of things. Um, and so I've brought a lot of, you know, vision setting, a lot of spreadsheets, like I said, and then just, um, also, just the the passion of everybody that I worked with at Adelsheim has kind of, you know, I've, I've absorbed a lot of that and learned a ton about winemaking. Even though I don't I don't make our wine, um, I can I can talk a good talk, um, 
and some of it's wrong, but that's okay. Uh, no, and, and like I said, I can refer people to, mm -hmm. to amazing places. So all of those things have been really, really helpful in getting this brand started. So you talked when you, about the kind of launching and thinking of distribution, thinking, thinking yeah. bigger perhaps than you were ready for at the moment. I'm curious, when you're looking at selling wine now, and we'll talk about 2020 here in a second, but even 2020 notwithstanding, what is your kind of vision of selling wine now, and sure. what do you think selling wine is going to be in the next for the next few years or in the next sure. years? And I'll speak mostly just for our brand. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, basically 2020 has been an amazing um, uh, reminder that having a connection directly to a brand is, I think, the future of where sales are gonna go. Um, people seem to be relying a lot less on the big conglomerate, you know, I'm going to only buy my wine at Total. Um, people wanna be connected to a brand. They wanna know the story behind it. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's millennials, maybe it's not. Um, I think there's a, there's a desire for people to buy local. There's a desire for people to understand the story mm -hmm. of where their food or where their products are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's there's something there that will continue to stick. Um, and for us, for Bellinger States, we are tiny now. You know, we make 250 cases a year across five SKUs. Um, and so it's small, but we're gonna sell it all from the tasting room. Mm -hmm. We are not gonna go through distribution at this point. If there's restaurants that wanna have the wines, we might try and self-distribute maybe. Um, we have a little bit of distribution in, in Northern Washington because that's where Evan's family is and you know, we wanted them to be able to drink a glass of it when they went to a restaurant. So, um, so I think there's still a place for some of, some of those relationships. Um, and obviously they're really, really important for the industry mm -hmm. to have our wines across the United States and across the world for people to be able to experience. But at the same time, that world is so crowded at this point. They are not looking for new brands. They are not looking for tiny brands. Um, they, we need our name out there for sure. And there's a huge role for larger wine and wine companies to play um, in order to continue to get the word of the Willamette Valley and Oregon out there. Um, but for us, for Bellinger Estates, we're going to do most of it direct to consumer here from the tasting room and we'll we'll see where it takes us mm -hmm. um, we'll see how we can grow with that and um, but we are going to try and keep our production tied to direct to consumer um, speaking more broadly i uh, i play a role on the willamette valley wineries association board and um, and i think there's there's a huge need for us to continue to market and promote our wines all across the world, mm -hmm. um, as you know, as we used to say, you know, if nobody, if we're still describing where Oregon is as it's north of Hollywood, <laughs> like that's a problem. We need to change that. We need Oregon to have a name um, and to be known on the world stage. And mm -hmm. our wines are there. Our mm -hmm. wines are, you know, delicious and comparable to Burgundy and comparable to other incredible wine-growing regions across the world. So. We need to continue to do that work, mm -hmm. to do the um, the marketing and the um, you know the the evangelism of Oregon um, around the world. Uh, but it will be, I think it's a, it's a hard place for a tiny brand mm -hmm. to exist. Mm -hmm. Is in that in that 
world, but we're, we're actively supporting the work that's happening by those brands that can do that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up the WVWA. Yeah. Tell me about your, your role there, your experience there, and sure. sort of why you want to be part of it and what sort of the, the accomplishments you feel like you've been a part of there. Yeah. So um, I've been on the Willamette Valley Wineries Association board for, I think I calculated the other day, I'm on year five. Um, and so um, I got involved in it, um, obviously, while I was still at Adelsheim. Uh, and David had a huge role in getting that organization started many, many years ago and starting OPC and all of the, all of the things associated. So um, during my time on the board, I've seen us um, we have taken over o Oregon Pinot Camp. So Oregon Pinot Camp is now a subsidiary organization of the WVWA. Uh, so that was a big change to see, uh, but at the same time, very aligned. I mean, there's a very good strategic reason that that happened. Uh, they were both run by the same staff. It, they were just two separate organizations mm -hmm. and it was kind of a headache administratively. Um, and so bringing those two under the same roof was, was a really great move. We also brought on, um, a new executive director. So uh, Morgan McLaughlin has been with us for a number of years now and uh, has really changed the game when it came to uh, being a wine association comparable to our peers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before it was more of a mom and pop kind of, you know, everybody in the industry was working to make it make it work and the and the team that started it was incredible and they did I mean they built Oregon Pinot Camp from nothing and it's probably the best marketing uh, tool that any wine region has ever had. Um, so I th I've, we've seen a couple of changes in the last number of years um, with OPC, with Morgan, and with, you know, with a lot of the kind of the work that's really been done. Um, the board is 18 people, so it's a, it's, a, it's a big board, but at the same time, it's a very hardworking board. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a huge amount of work that's done by by the group of people that are associated. We have a staff of three or four people, um, but everything else is done by committees and done by industry members. So it's been it's been an incredible learning experience because there's, I mean, like my experience at Adelsheim, there's there's so many wonderful and insanely talented people in this industry, um, many of whom had previous careers doing other things. Mm -hmm that they're bringing to bear mm -hmm. when they come here. So um, it's been a really amazing thing to watch. I think going forward, we have some, some really awesome opportunities that are upcoming uh, for the association and for the industry. Uh, we started a couple of years ago, we started the trade auction. So we started doing a, um, a, a Pinot Noir auction for trade only. So it's for distributors, for um, restaurants, retail outlets, uh, even private buying cor consortiums of, uh, of end consumers. Uh, and, and really that's changed the game for the Willamette Valley Winers Association because that auction is able to help us do incredible marketing and outreach mm -hmm. and, and development of the industry that previously we couldn't have afforded to do. Um, we took that model from Napa. They did a, they've done an amazing job of having uh, a trade auction that, that really fuels the organization and allows them to do marketing and outreach. Um, and so we've seen it be very, very successful over the last couple of years and we're excited to have that momentum continue. Mm -hmm. um, and the other piece that was missing, um, which I'm excited to be a part of right now, is 
is a philanthropic side of things. So we have, uh, the WVWA has never had a, a truly dedicated philanthropic side. We've done a lot of philanthropy. Um, we've done a, you know, a, a food share program for a number of years, quite a few years now. Um, and of course, the, the industry as a whole, all of our wineries donate countless amounts of money, wine, time to um, an incredible breadth of nonprofit organizations, 501c3s across, uh, really across the world, um, that are doing great things. But it's, it hasn't ever been centralized. And so we're excited to, we're going to be announcing tomorrow, in fact, um, at the annual meeting, we're, we're going to be starting a foundation. Um, and so I'm, I'm working with the committee to develop a 501c3 uh, that will be housed under the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. It'll have a separate board. Um, it, we're working on all of the administrative details that it takes to start that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, we're really excited to kind of really hone the messaging and clarify what, um, what our, share what our vision is for that organization and that foundation to do. Again, this is something that Napa has done really well over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. They have a very um, a prominent philanthropic auction that happens, that's a consumer-facing auction, and they have a really fabulous trade auction that fuels the organization. And so we're, we're really using that model as, um, as a successful one and one that we can um, emulate and tweak um, and make it Oregon, for sure. Uh, but at the same time, it's a really great opportunity for us to both um, grow the organization and continue to do the incredible and important marketing work that we have to do. Um, but also really hone and uh, and make an impact on our community mm -hmm. uh, in a really substantive way. And mm -hmm. our goal is to raise $10 million in the next 10 years. So it's not, the goal isn't to, to you know, do a couple, couple thousand dollars here and there. We want to make a big impact. Mm -hmm. um, and really, we want to magnify the impact that the Oregon wine industry has already given mm -hmm. in philanthropic work. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. It's impressive. It'll be impressive. fun. An excellent timing. I'm glad we're here today to yeah. get the sneak preview. Yeah, sneak preview. Exactly. I'm curious about, for you personally, um, you, you've mentioned you started on the board while you were at Adelsheim. You mm -hmm. remain on the board now that you're not. And you're, I'm curious, has your perspective shifted at all uh, as you have shifted from a large pioneer brand to a small family brand? Um, have you, does what you, does your perspective toward the board change? Does what you're, what you're bringing to the board change or what you're looking for from the board change? Um, not necessarily. Um, I approach my work on the board um, uh, really from a lens of an industry perspective, not from the company that I work for perspective. Um, you know, when I started with Adelsheim, it was easy to make sure that I was thinking about things through that lens. But at the same time, you know, I still carry that with me today. Um, it, you know, even though I'm not in daily meetings at Adelsheim or anything like that, I'm still very connected to a lot of wineries here in the Valley. And, and I try and bring that perspective mm -hmm. to, the, to my work at the board um, and really, you know, take that back uh, compared to coming at it from what does Bellinger Estates need mm -hmm. from the WVWA or what can Bellinger Estates bring? Because obviously we 
we can't do a lot because uh, we're a little tiny. But at the same time, you know, it's it's. I think in any board work, it's important to not just represent your organization, mm -hmm. but to represent the industry that you're serving, mm -hmm. um, and the and the, or the community that you're serving. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, I that's kind of how I approach it. It it doesn't really change my perspective based on being here versus being at adult time at that point. Mm -hmm. um, So we've, we've, we've obviously talked quite a bit about 2020 today and yeah. uh, bits and pieces. So let's talk about 2020 from your perspective. Obviously, sure. it started off with a sure. leaving of a job and a new baby. Yeah. And we just kind of went freewheeling <laughs> from there. So tell me, exactly. about, tell me about the impact that, that the, uh, the pandemic has had on, on you, your, on your business. Sure. And tell me about the 2020 season, the growing season, and, and mm -hmm. how that impacted your work as well. Yeah. Well, 2020 was a doozy, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, with our little one coming uh, in January, it was, uh, it was still a great year. You know, there were a lot of great things that came out of 2020 and the pandemic, um, despite everything that happened. Mm -hmm. um, it was obviously a fascinating year for a lot of different reasons. Um, I, was, I was very happy that I was starting a new thing at that time and, and that I wasn't, uh, you know, Evan and I built this knowing that the wine industry costs a lot of money before it will ever make any money. And so, um, so we were prepared for that, thankfully. Um, our business in 2020 was actually pretty comparable to the prior year. Uh, it was, we were right on par with prior year sales. Uh, that being said, it's a small base. And so we weren't expecting dramatic growth in the first year that we were open. You know, we opened in August, so we kind of missed a good portion of the major mm -hmm. season anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel blessed that we didn't miss out on what we expected to be a giant year, um, whereas a lot of businesses were very hurt by that. So mm -hmm. um, for, for our part, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a horrible uh, impact mm -hmm. on the business. Mm -hmm. That being said, 2020 uh, with the fires was a whole different experience than either of us have ever had uh, in this industry, and most people obviously have never had to deal with something like that. Um, it was definitely an eye-opener, um, and I think the, the industry did an amazing job of rallying quickly um, and getting people the support that they needed quickly. Um, I know that RP worked tirelessly to make sure that fruit was picked when winemakers and growers needed it to be picked mm. um, and that and that their employees were taken care of and and were safe and so it was it was I saw an incredible coming together of the industry um, around both the fires and the pandemic mm. overall and I think realistically 2020 taught us that we can't rest on our laurels we can't expect anything to go the way that we want it to every time. And so, you know, Oregon has worked really, really hard over the last 50 or 60 years to kind of claw our way into this club, if you will, um, of, of more well-established areas that mm -hmm. grow wine. And I think 2020 taught us that, that we have to continue that work. We have to continue to push forward and, um, um, and really make a name for ourselves uh, no matter what the year throws at us. Mm -hmm. So um, 
you know, I think there will be a lot of amazing wine that comes out of the 2020 vintage. We're pretty optimistic about the fruit that came off of our vineyard personally. Of course, it was our first, the first harvest we ever had uh, was amid the fires. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've tasted through the wines and, and we're, we're cautiously optimistic. We'll see how they develop and just like everybody else, we're kind of kind of, we're gonna wait and see and, 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 but at the same time, be optimistic about what they can what they can be. I think we'll see across the industry, we'll see the whole gamut. You know, you'll see wines that are completely unaffected. They were picked before the fires or they were in a, a pocket of area that didn't have a lot of smoke or, you know, you'll see some stuff that's truly incredible. And I've heard from a lot of people, even the last couple of days that are really optimistic about the quality of the vintage. Um, and then we'll see stuff that's that's more smoke affected and we'll see some examples of that and and in fact you're probably seeing some of that out on the market right now because people are releasing wines quick um i think a thankful thing is that a lot of people went into uh the 2020 calendar year with a decent inventory um and so that will help some organizations weather the storm mm -hmm. um at the same time i think one of the pieces that we're talking about on the on the WBWA side is the importance of messaging and the importance of optimism during this time. Um, it'll be really easy to turn this into a 2007 situation where somebody will pan the vintage and it will hurt all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to, as an industry, we need to make sure that we are clear about the opportunity that exists from 2020 and not make foregone conclusions before the wines have even been tasted. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of work to come uh, that 2020 gave us, but at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity mm -hmm. for us to, to continue marching forward and doing great things um, in the industry. I also think there's a, there's a lot of innovation that's going to come out of 2020 and the pandemic in general. I mean, we've seen obviously the uptick of Zoom and you know all of the FaceTime calls and the things that we now spend our lives doing. But at the same time, there's going to be a lot of cool innovation that comes out of this mm -hmm. that I think will stick. Um, some of it'll some of it'll fall back, but I don't I don't think we're going to go back to the old normal. Mm -hmm. um, we will we will have a lot of cool new stuff that comes out of this. And I'm, I'm excited about that. I think it'll be a good opportunity for people to realize that status quo isn't good enough and, um, and we can do new and good things. Mm -hmm. So talking about the future for you and, and for Bellinger Estates, then what are, you, what are you hoping for in terms of growth here and in terms of development and, mm -hmm. and, and your own personal role? What do, you, what do you see as you look ahead for yeah. five or 10 years? You know, really the intention for Evan and I was to create, um, to, re to create something that could last, that could endure long term, that we could pass down to our children if they so choose, um, if they want it, um, but really to create something that's long lasting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that's really intriguing and endearing about the wine industry in general is that it is naturally a long term investment, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, vineyards last for decades, not for, you know, five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so it's a long-term vision for the organization and it's, an, it's a long-term investment. Um, but really we're, I think, 
here at Bellinger Estates in the tasting room, we're looking to grow it organically. Um, we want to, you know, we don't even have a summer under our belt yet, so we'll we'll kind of see how that develops and see how people are um, responding to our brand and responding to the wines and um, how they want to use the space and, and come out and, and explore. Um, we want to connect people to agriculture because Evan and I both fervently believe that um, you know people are going to continue to have to farm in order to feed the people that are on this planet um, and so getting people out to farms is a really important element that we'd like to make sure holds true um, and that's part of the reason that we've designed it the way that we have we want people to be able to walk into the vineyard and touch a grapevine um, or go out and cut their own flowers um, and take them home so it's um, I think that, that piece is really important to us as well. But realistically, the growth of the brand, it, we'll, we'll see where it goes. We don't have um, an intention to take it to a certain case count, um, which is where we would have historically talked about it, um, being, you know, we need to be a 10,000 case brand or we something else. We don't have that um, metric in mind at this point. We're, we're gonna see where it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, this is really a passion of ours um, and it's something that we believe in. Um, but it's not uh, an intention to hit a certain metric. So we're going to see where it goes and we'll really we want to make it something that people are excited to come and visit mm -hmm. and, um, and really that they can connect with us, with us and our story. Um, and then the other piece that I, I haven't talked about yet is the connection to uh, charitable giving. So uh, like I said, my work on the philanthropic side of WVWA is, is really important to me, but uh, we're also connected to uh, an organization called Heifer International, um, and a portion of our proceeds of every bottle that we sell goes to Heifer International to, um, to connect people back to agriculture, to provide jobs for families, and to provide food um, and sustenance and, uh, and a family business mm. to uh, individu individuals all across the world. So uh, we're involved in that. We're also involved in the Children's Cancer Association, which is here uh, locally in Portland, but is looking to expand nationally, and they do amazing work. Um, and I'm part of their uh, leadership team as well. So we're, we're connected to a number of, and there's a couple of other things that we're, we're passionate about as well, but um, we wanna make sure that, that our brand is something that gives back, mm -hmm. um, and that's a pivotal piece—a um, pivotal piece of what we do as well. Yeah. Something you brought up earlier that I'm curious about, in, in light of kind of the growth of Bellinger Estates, you talked about mm -hmm. the changing consumers, and and, and you and your—you mentioned your peer group as as the changing consumer. Uh, how do you how do you anticipate, or how are you hoping to build that kind of brand loyalty, that kind of like mm -hmm. connection? How are you going to share your story? How, how do you foresee kind of getting those, those consumers who maybe are not into wine or maybe don't know much about wine? Yeah. How are you planning to bring them in? And, 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 how, and how do you foresee the next generation of consumer? Yeah. Um, I think realistically, people want to come to wine country, um, but they're often daunted by the, you know, by who knows what, whether it's price point or experience level or, or you know what the parking lot looks like. Um, I think there's uh, I think there's a huge opportunity to hit a new consumer that um, they want to come out, they want an opportunity to explore something, but they also want an opportunity to ask dumb questions and not feel like they're being judged or being told 
how to do something or how to swirl the wine in their glass, which is literally a story I just heard. Um, it's, I think people want that connection, and so we're, we're looking for people that want that. I mm -hmm. think uh, a lot of the work that we have done uh, is on Instagram. We've, we've been, our marketing has been primarily on Instagram, and Evan's done a great job of connecting with people that way and, um, and getting people to come out. But really, everybody that comes out is intrigued by the story. They are excited to be able to ask questions. They love it that I tell them that they can dump their wine on the ground if they don't want to drink it. Like, you know, people resonate with, um, they resonate with the realism, I think, that we are trying to embody here. And, uh, and I, I think that the story kind of speaks for itself. And I think most wineries in the Valley will ha see the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they see consumers that want to learn more. They want to learn about the story mm -hmm. of that individual winery or about the place, the Willamette Valley in general. Um, consumers are asking the right questions. They just, and they want to come here. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, we live in Oregon. It's gorgeous a lot of the year. Um, and it's, it's a pretty incredible place to visit. We just need to keep getting people here and giving them an amazing experience while they're here. So on that note, what do you what do you see for the for the future of the Oregon wine industry? What what will be changing in the next five, ten years and what are you kind of hoping for and maybe mm. what are you concerned about? Hmm. Um I see a lot of I th I see a lot of growth in direct to consumer. Um I'm very bullish on Tourism to Oregon, tourism to the Willamette Valley in particular. Uh, like I said, I think a lot of people want to come here. They want to experience the magic that's here. There's a reason that Oregon Pinot Camp is this Im incredible thing that exists that people want to be a part of. Um, IPNC is another good example of that. People want to experience the magic that Oregon has. And it really does have magic. You know, you get off the plane and it's everything's green and it's beautiful and the people are nice. Um, at least they were before 2020. Hopefully <laughs> they will continue to be. Um, but I think, I, I think people want to experience that magic. And, mm -hmm. and thankfully, I think we, we live and work in an industry where that magic is real and it's not something we've made up. So um, I think the future is incredibly bright for the Oregon wine industry. I think we're on a trajectory of, of recognition for the wines that we're making, mm -hmm. of having a good climate for growing the wines that we are growing, and, and still having a lot of opportunity in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so many people that we haven't reached yet. So I think there's a lot of upside that we will see over the next 10, 20 years of the industry. We'll obviously see a lot of changes too. So the brands that have been around for a long time will have to go through some amount of transition, whether they're being sold or transitioning to second generation or mm -hmm. third generation here soon. Mm -hmm. um, there will be a lot of, of transition that happens, whether it's through acquisitions or mergers or, um, or even just transitions within families. Mm -hmm which I don't think is all bad. Um, there's a lot of opportunity that can happen when, um, it, you know, I mean, even take Kendall Jackson coming to Oregon as an example of, of a decent size wine company 
doing it really well and coming in and, and getting involved in Salud and, and being involved in the, you know, the Willamette Valley Wineries Association or other, other organizations and really doing it right mm -hmm. um, and joining the Oregon wine industry, not being an outsider and t just taking a piece of the pie. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of good examples of how that can work well. Um, but we will see, uh, for good or for bad, we'll see a lot of transition over the last of, over the next ten years, mm -hmm. and and obviously there's still brands popping up here and there that are that are brand new to the industry. So we'll mm -hmm. still see some growth in um, in new brands and new um, new ideas. I think there's there's like I said before, there's a lot of innovation that's going to come out of the pandemic, and. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're seeing other brands that are no longer using glass bottles, and there's a you know a huge rise in alternative packaging. The, there's probably a lot of growth still to happen in that in that realm. With you know the majority of people making wine still are doing it in classic mm -hmm. 750 glass bottles. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of change to come, but uh, I don't see it as a bad thing. I don't see it as a threat. I see it as the um, just the next phase in our industry and um, as long as we keep the roots of the or of the industry and the organizations that are here in collaboration and you know promoting the region as a whole rather than individual brands there's a huge amount of upside and there's a huge um, opportunity for people all around the world to experience Oregon wines mm -hmm. So obviously you took a you took a kind of indirect accidental path into the industry. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. curious uh, if someone were to ask you about joining the Oregon wine industry, what mm -hmm. your words of wisdom to them would be, and maybe what you would have done, wished you had done differently. Thankfully, I don't have any regrets in terms of how I got into the industry. I fell into an amazing place uh, right away. My advice to anybody looking to get into the industry, whether they're students in a you know in a wine studies path or not. Um, is uh, my advice would be get involved, whether it's taking a harvest internship position or working in a vineyard for a while, or even just volunteering on the bottling line, or um, you know, uh, working in a tasting room. All of those are really great experiences, and like uh, like the experience that I had working at Adelsheim, you know, once you're once you're inside, you get to see a broader swath than. Um, than in most industries if you were to take a specific internship. Mm -hmm. um, the Oregon wine industry is still small enough, Oregon, you know, the, the brands are still small enough that you'll be able to experience a huge number of different elements of the business and get exposure to uh, different things if you want to. Um, the trick is asking questions, being interested, and, and asking if you can learn more. Um, if you don't ask, you will never have the opportunity. If I had never asked David Adelsheim to learn about running a business, I never would have gotten on the path that I did. Um, and of course, a lot of that is the reception too. You've got to ask the right person to, uh, and somebody who's willing to support you in that. But I think, thankfully, our industry is full of those people. Mm -hmm. They want to help people um, get into this industry. We want people from all backgrounds and uh, people who look different and people who look similar. Like we want everybody to have a chance to understand how cool this industry is and share the passion that we all have for it. Like that. 
That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Not that I can think of. Um, no. Excellent. Come and visit us at Bellinger Estates, I guess. <laughs> you got to get the plug in there. Right? Yeah, Perfect. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your time course. today, thank for you. your hospitality here and this cool yes. space and all your answers yeah. and, and thoughts. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.